We now come in the scriptures to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this opportunity to delve deeply into what it means to love you and to love one another. Grant us your presence and grant us wisdom to live according to this word. May we be faithful to you and may we glorify your name. In Christ we pray. Amen. You know that throughout this letter, the apostle has been addressing various issues that have arisen in the church. And these people have been living diligently in many ways. However, they have been persecuted and false teachers have infiltrated their midst so that they have doubts and questions and confusion about what actually they should believe. The apostle will deal with theology. He has dealt with it and exalted Christ in chapter 1 and so forth. He will deal with theology some more about what we should believe, what is the true gospel. He will deal with it in chapter 7 to 10 some more about the actual purpose of the death and resurrection of Christ in those chapters. However, interspersed throughout his letter, we remember that he has admonitions and he has encouragements. He has both something to warn us with and something to comfort us with. He's got both of these interspersed throughout this whole letter. We just finished last time in chapter 6, verses 3 to 8, with the most recent warning. And now he turns in verses 9 to 12 with encouragement. He's trying to encourage the believers in their faith to press on and to persevere in the things that they do. Now let's see what he says about this comfort or encouragement. Verse 9, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Though we are speaking, though he was speaking in the way of a very harsh and severe admonition, warning in the previous passage, which is true of some people, he does not think that what he just said is actually true of his own readers, his own church specifically. He doesn't think that the vast majority of them are the way that he just described in the previous passage. He doesn't think that they are that way, because he says that he is convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. He knows them well enough to understand that they are not like the people he just described, because he knows their life, he knows their belief, he knows the way that they conduct themselves day by day. He knows who they are. So what he just described is not them. However, as we said before, he does tell them this because it could be that one of them, it could be that one of them might be as he just described. That's why he says 
in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you, any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. As well, in chapter 6, verse 11, our passage, he says in verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance, assurance of hope until the end. He wants each one who hears the word to have this same diligence. He doesn't want anybody to be slack, anybody to be lazy and sluggish. He wants everyone to be faithful and produce much fruit in their Christian life. He doesn't want them to produce a little bit so that it raises doubt in the minds of the individual and in the minds of people. He wants them to bear much fruit. That's why he addressed what he did in the previous passage, to make sure that whoever hears takes that warning to bear much fruit and not be like some people are who hear the Word of God and who turn away from that Word of God. They don't really believe it. They enjoy it temporarily, but then they don't believe it. They have a stubborn, stony, hard heart, and it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. He wants to make sure nobody is like that. But in this case, he says of them that he is convinced of better things concerning uh, you and the things that accompany salvation. He knows he has seen plenty of fruit in their life that he doesn't think that the church is lost, that the whole group of them are those who fall away and don't really and truly believe the gospel. Then, notice, he calls them beloved. The same group that he warned, the same group that he encourages, he calls them beloved. He Beloved because God has loved them by saving them from their sins. God has loved them by giving them the Holy Spirit. God has loved them by forgiving them and giving them eternal life and everything that pertains to life and godliness. God has done that for them by adopting them, by saving them. And because God loves them, He loves them. Because the way to fulfill the greatest commandment to love God is to love our neighbor as ourself. Love our neighbor as ourself is proof and evidence of the fact that we do love God. So that's why he loves them. He loves them because they are now all part of the same family, the same spiritual family of God. They are all children of God by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ, they belong to one another, so he should love them, and he considers them beloved. He doesn't consider them enemies. He doesn't consider them strangers. He considers them beloved. Why? Because God has loved them. God has loved him. Therefore, they all should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, John 13, 34, and 35, he speaks of this great commandment, this new commandment that he has laid down to love one another. Then, verse 10. Why is it that he knows that there's better things that accompany them, the things that accompany salvation? How is he convinced of their salvation. Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He knows because God knows. And he says God is not unjust 
so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He knows there is evidence, there is practical, visible evidence that he's seen in their life that they are ministering, they have ministered, and they still minister or serve. They have served people, the people of God, and they continue to serve the people of God. That takes eye, eye view, right? Eyewitness and ear witness accounts of people actually doing good things for one another. They help one another. They see a need in somebody's life, and they speak up. They say something to encourage. They do something, whatever it takes to help meet that need. That's what they're doing. They are helping one another with those things. They are seeing valid opportunities to manifest fruit, to manifest good deeds. But we need a word of clarification here. He calls it work and he calls it love, which it is. It's a labor of love. It's a work of love. Because God loves us, we ought to love one another and we ought to display that love by working or laboring, helping, ministering, serving one another. This is what should happen. Now, when he says this, and he says God is not unjust, he's not meaning that we are saved from our sins because we do good works. He does not mean that. He does not mean we are saved from sins or we receive eternal life because we do good works. Every other religion, and even cults within Christianity, they all teach that we are saved from sins because of good works. And even many churches that are in denominations or called denominations of Christianity, they teach good works for salvation. And they seize upon verses like this one to teach that we are saved by good works. As long as we do good, be a do-gooder, and you'll get to heaven. That's what they believe. They think if, if you just help the poor, if you just do this, or if you just do that, you will get to heaven. And then it doesn't matter how you live otherwise. It doesn't matter what you believe otherwise. Just give a little bit of money to the poor or occasionally, and you'll get to heaven. They have beliefs like this, and they seize upon verses like this, uh, resting them and mangling them out of context. That's what they do with verses like this. But we know that that's not true. We know that that's not true because he's already told us and he will tell us that we are saved by the will of God. We are saved because of God's work in us, not because of our goodness, but because of God's adoption of us, which he mentioned in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. God the Father gave children to God the Son. I and the children. If God gave children to the Son, how? Because God adopted those children and gave them to his Son. We did not become children of God because we did something, but because God adopted us into his family. He gave us to Christ. If he gave us to Christ, that happened because of God's will. And even chapter 6, verse 3, And this we shall do if God permits. We shall grow in maturity if God permits. Just as God permits or wills for us to be his children, he permits and wills for us to mature in Christ. And this maturity is manifested in proper beliefs, 
according to verses 1 and 2, chapter 6, 1 and 2, and proper behavior in chapter 6, verse 10. So, based on God's grace, God's grace produces fruit in us. What he's talking about in verse 10 is the fact that if God's grace is truly within us, it will show on the outside. It will show in our good deeds. So our good deeds are the evidence of the true grace of God at work in the heart. If our hands are doing good deeds, it's because God changed the heart first to motivate the hand to do what's right. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point even of our letter, that God's grace produces God's gracious good work in the life of the believers. And because of this, God is not unjust. He's not unjust. He's not unrighteous. Not that he would ever be, but sometimes we wonder. Sometimes we have doubts. And sometimes skeptics in the world, they wonder, is God a righteous God? Is he a just and equitable God? They wonder that. And here he's saying, don't even let that thought come into your mind. Our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God the God who knows all things and has all power and is present everywhere, he is not unrighteous. He's righteous in the perfect sense of the term. He's loving in the perfect sense of the term. So whatever you do, don't do it begrudgingly. Don't do it selfishly. Don't do it with an an ulterior motive. Do it simply because you love God and for the glory of God. When you do it for that reason... When you're helping the people of God, God's not unjust, and in due time, He will bless you. Whether in this life or the life to come, He will bless you. He's not unrighteous. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Always believe what God's Word says. Always believe in the promises of God. He calls on us to do this, so He will bless us. He's not unjust. Further, verse 11 Oh, uh, verse 10, one more thing in verse 10. At the end of verse 10, when he says, still ministering to the saints, he's saying it's not enough to just do it in the past, but it should continue regularly in the Christian life. It's not enough to say, I did this once in the past. No, do it again and do it again. Continue doing it throughout the Christian life. And then further in verse 10, he says, to the saints. Why does he say to the saints? Because, as it says in Galatians 6.10, So then, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We are to do good to all men whenever we see a, a need, a legitimate need. We are to do good to all people, whether they believe in the, the gospel of Christ or not. However, we are to especially do good to the saints. That's why he says that right there in 10, in still ministering to the saints, just like Galatians 6.10. We ought to do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And the uh, comparison is with our own families. Do we not especially do good to our own families? We are responsible, we provide, we help our own families first, our own immediate family first and then our extended families, and then we go to friends and strangers and others. This is the way that we do it. 
because God has ordained it to be that way. It's self-evident and normal and natural for us to know we ought to help our immediate family first, and then, by extension, those who are farther away from us in, our, in relationship. In the same way is the spiritual connotation of that. We ought to help those in the body of Christ first. The first place is the, our own local church, and then other Christians, and then, by extension, farther out whenever we see people in need, help them. That's the way it should be. And that's what he means in verse 10. Then who should do this? Verse 11. Some of us or all of us? Verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Everyone should be like this. We cannot say it's only for the pastor to be this way. We cannot say it's only for the elders to be this way, or only for the deacons to be this way, or only for those who have been in the Christian faith for 10 years or 20 years or something. We cannot say it's only for the new converts, because the new converts have a special zeal right after their conversion. It's not just for a certain category of Christian. It's for each Christian to show this diligence, to produce fruit. Because it's necessary for each Christian to have full conviction and full assurance of their salvation. And it's necessary for each Christian to be able to demonstrate to other people what it truly means to know God and to serve God in the name of God. Because if we don't have that with us, within us first, and about our own life first, how can we convey it to others properly? Because we will be hypocrites. That's why he says we desire that each one of you don't let anyone slip through the cracks, but pursue everyone. Everyone who names the name of Christ should bear fruit. 30, 60, 100-fold, each one. And speaking of fruit, sometimes people wonder, what is fruit? Well, What's the difference between rotten fruit and good fruit? You know that when you go to the store. You know that when, when you see it and pull it out of the refrigerator, right? You know that. If you know that, we can also see that in terms of what we believe and how we behave. Don't we see that in our life? Don't we see that in, in, the, in the theology that we used to believe and the theology we should believe now? Don't we see that in the morality we used to believe and practice in contrast to the morality that we now believe and practice? The scriptures are quite clear in many, many places about this difference in the way we used to be and the way we should be now. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself of for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things 
the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That means, we used to practice idolatry, so now we don't do it anymore. We worship the true and living God. We used to practice immorality, but we don't do that anymore because we live in accordance with the righteousness of God. We live that way. So whatever it used to be that we did with our eyes, our mouth, our, our ears, our hands, our feet, whatever we used to do, we don't do that anymore. We do more productive things. We do more constructive things, eternal things, spiritual things on the good side. We pursue goodness and righteousness instead of evil and wickedness. Plain and simple. That's the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. So each one should show this same diligence. Note here, he uses the term diligence. The same diligence. Diligence. Are we all eager in the same way? Do we have this kind of eagerness to do the will of God the same? Are we that way? Or do we just let it slip? Or we just let it slack? Do we say, well, that might be good for him to do, but I'm not going to be that way. He does this or he does that because he's gifted in doing this or that. Well, didn't we read Romans 12? Yes, we are gifted differently according to Romans chapter 12, but wherever and whatever our gift is, use that gift. Don't let it remain dormant. Don't let it remain dormant and dead. Don't do that because when it is dormant, then it's unfruitful. When it's dormant, it's not helping anybody. It's not even helping yourself. Wherever God has gifted you, use those gifts to help somebody else. Somebody else first in the body of Christ and then in the world. Use those gifts with diligence. Don't make the excuse, well, I don't have to be so zealous or diligent or eager because I'm not gifted the way he is or the way she is. No. Whatever your gift is, use that gift with diligence. He says diligence because later in verse 12, he says that you may not be sluggish. The opposite of diligence is sluggishness. We've seen a slug. The term slug comes from that bug that moves about very, very slowly. We shouldn't be that way. We should be like the roadrunner here and there doing the will of God not like the slug. We need to be around, going about busily doing the will of God. If we are constructively and busily doing the will of God, we're not going to be lazy. We're not going to be sitting around. We're not going to be sluggish. We're going to be doing something that's good. It's good for us so that we not relapse into sin. And it's good for others because we are constructively benefiting them and encouraging them by what we do for them. This is how we should be. 
then, why should we be this way? Verse 11 says, to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. To realize the full assurance of hope until the end. People, sometimes, when they doubt their salvation, they doubt their salvation because they see the Word of God does not, or or their life does not match up with the Word of God. This is why they doubt their salvation. But if they examined their life according to the Word of God, and they saw their life the way the Word of God sees their life, if they saw fruit in their life, they would not be doubtful. They would know there was a change, there was a difference that occurred, whether they remember the date or not, whether they remember a specific incident or not. They remember that they used to think wickedly. They used to have different values. Now they have heavenly values. Now they have a desire for righteousness. Now they have a desire for truth. They don't care about the things of the world like they used to care. If this difference is there, then you can have this realization of this full assurance of hope until the end. But when it's not there, then doubts arise. Am I really in Christ or not? People wonder. Well, what is the means, according to verse 11? The means of having full assurance of hope. The realization of this full assurance of hope until the end. The means is producing fruit. Produce fruit by the will of God, by the help of the Spirit of God, by the help of the grace of God and the power of God. Do good. Seek to know what His will is. Seek to have His wisdom and produce that good fruit in your life. This is how there will be full assurance of hope until the end. And when, once you re, um, obtain that kind of full assurance of hope, no one can take it away from you. It doesn't matter if somebody calls you a name, a bad name for being a Christian. It doesn't matter if somebody threatens to take some of your property away from you because you say you are a Christian. It doesn't matter if somebody has a weapon that he's about to use against you to take away your life because you say you are a Christian. Because you have full assurance of hope until the end. It doesn't matter. Because you know what is true and nothing will shake you from that full realization (coughs) of the truth. This is the kind of realization that we all should have. We all should have that so that we are unflinchingly able to stand in the face of affliction and even persecutors who threaten to put us to death. That's what happened to them. That's what happened to them in terms of persecution. Remember, it says in Hebrews 10.32, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They had persecutors who seized their property. And in chapter 12, verse 4, he says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Striving against sin. They had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in striving against sin. 
So the worst thing that could happen to us in striving against sin is for our blood to be shed. That means that everything else is nothing. It's petty and trivial for us to give up because we're not giving up our own life, physical life, in the face of a persecutor who's wanting to shed our blood. So let's give it up. What sin is there that we are unwilling to give up? Give it up. Produce fruit. Have the, and when you do produce fruit, you will have contentment, you will have comfort, you'll have the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Holy Spirit, and you won't want to resort back to those old ways. You won't want that. It won't mean anything to you because you are diligently realizing the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end. Remember, do not relapse. He's been stressing this again and again. He say, says in chapter 6, verse 6, and then have fallen away. He's saying, don't fall away. Or in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, any one of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So don't do that. Instead, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Let's endure until the end. It's good for us, it's necessary for our soul, and it's necessary for others by example. And speaking of example, verse 12. On the positive side, he says, show the same diligence, but on the negative side, that you may not be sluggish. What are we talking about? We're talking about a contrast. Be one way, not another way. Then, on the positive, returning to the positive illustration, he says in verse 12, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We have to learn to mimic, imitate, repeat, follow models, the proper models and examples in life. We have many set before us all the time. The world is always setting examples <coughs> right before us. Always. On the television, on the internet, in magazines, in the schools, wherever you go, they are setting models or examples before us for us to imitate them, to be like them, whatever it may be. What we need to do is close our eyes and ears to them because the world does not care about our soul. The world wants to destroy our soul. We need to find imitators uh, or examples in the Bible. He says here, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He is about to, in the next passage, use the example of Abraham, which he has done earlier too. Abraham is the supreme example in the Bible of a man of faith. And if we are a man of faith like him, then the Bible calls us children or offspring of Abraham by faith. Whether Jew or not, Jew or Gentile, we are his offspring. But he doesn't necessarily only mean Abraham because he says, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is why, though he does mention Abraham at length in chapter 11, he mentions numerous other people of the Old Testament, both men and women of the Old Testament, who were saints, who believed in the promises of God, 
who endured much affliction, who had many obstacles constantly set before them, but they overcame them. They overcame them. We need to look to them as examples, to them as imitators, because we don't usually suffer affliction to the same severity as they did, yet they endured. They had faith and patience. They endured, so they become good examples for us, for us to rise to their level, for us to seek and pray and ask God for the strength to rise to their level of faith. This is necessary. It's necessary for all of us to look to them as models and examples for faith. Not only do we look to them as examples, but we'll also see that we need current examples. Current examples. For example, it says in Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. We see here that the, the relationship between the leaders of the church and the people of the church, and also in verse 18, he says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. The leaders of their church were desiring to conduct themselves honorably in all things. So if they are conducting themselves honorably in all things, at least striving for that, should not the people mimic that, imitate that, be in subjection to that, and obey them when they are doing so in that regard? So whether biblical examples or current examples or even historical examples, many throughout church history, we should look to them as examples of those who endured, who had faith and who had patience, who waited many, many years for things to happen before they actually happened. And by these good examples, we can understand that if they could make it, if God would take care of them, God will also take care of us. In contrast, we should not look at the evil examples. The evil examples will, the current evil examples, will bring us down. They will cause us to compromise. They'll cause us to wonder about the goodness of God or the justice of God. They'll cause us to go into sin, to relapse into our former sins. When we have evil examples that are always in front of us, take them away, put them away. Don't be there, don't be with them. Whatever it takes to be away from those evil examples. Instead, use the evil examples of the Bible and whatever evil examples you happen to see in this life. In the Bible, evil examples are given so that we not imitate them. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, 
The evil examples are recorded in the Bible for us to learn not to mimic them because that was the outcome and that's what God thought of them. In the same way today. The same way today. When, when you see a drunkard, when you see a drunk, drunkard wobbly, walking, you see him fall down, you see him vomit on the roadside, you see things like that, you see the things he says, the things that come out of his mouth, you see the kind of way that he behaves, who wants to be like him? Who, using their proper senses, wants to be like him? Nobody, right? Nobody wants to be like him. So if nobody wants to be like him, and you see that evil example, then why pursue the same things that he pursued to get that way? No, don't do that. Whatever the example is. Or let's say it's a gambler. A gambler squanders all of his money at the casino. Or, or whatever, some sports game. He gambles away all of his money away. He lives in poverty. He's not able to provide for his family. Who wants to be like him? So don't do the same thing. Instead of letting the evil examples trip us up because of our weakness, why not have resolve and determination and say, I will not be like that by the grace of God. I will not be like that and I will preach against that. I won't be that way myself, and I'll teach people around me not to be that way either. Why not do that? Because when we do so, just as Abraham did, Noah did, Moses, Isaiah, David, all the, the, the people and saints of the Old Testament lived this way, they did so with faith and patience to inherit the promises. Faith and patience. He adds patience there because... He wants to emphasize that it's not temporary faith. It's not a, a, a vaporous faith that you see just temporarily. It's not like that. It's a faith that endures until the end. It takes faith and patience together to inherit the promises. We inherit the promises verbally. That is, God tells us what the promises are. We put faith in those promises and we see certain evidences of God's goodness to us in relation to those promises. But the fruition of those promises, the full experience of those promises, is not now. It waits the day of resurrection. It awaits until that time. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. The saints of the Old Testament look forward to those promises. They receive them in the verbal sense. They receive them by faith. They trusted in them. And they saw the goodness of God manifested in their life here and there in many ways. They experienced that. But they did not have a resurrected, immortal body. They died. They were buried. They were persecuted, right? That Those kinds of things happened to them. And in the same way, they will happen to us. But we need to continue with our eyes fixed on the promises of God. That a day of resurrection comes. A day of judgment comes. God will take care of all injustices and this world will pass away and the only thing that matters is being in the presence of Christ forever and ever. Keep that fixed in front of us and you'll have the right perspective. That's what his exhortation is here. Those promises are there for us, undeserving people who deserve the punishment of God, but now God has, by his grace, abundant grace, 
given us his promises. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's do the will of God. Be diligent. Serve one another. Love God. Do so in the name of God. For when we do so in the name of God, we show forth Christ. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.